The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. This is Squawk Box. Let's get into your headlines this hour. Asian stock markets fall to a seven-week low as the death toll from the coronavirus rises to 170 and hundreds of foreigners are evacuated. The Chinese government also warning growth could drop to 5% due to the outbreak. Facebook shares sink in after-hours trade despite an earnings beat as investors focus on the social media giant's rising costs and narrowing margins. In corporate news, Deutsche Bank hopes a year of restructuring will pay off in its 2019 earnings, but trading revenues are still expected to underwhelm. We're going to hear from the CFO at 7.30 Central European time. And the key word is appropriate for the Federal Reserve as the central bank holds steady. But the chair, Jerome Powell, says uncertainties around the outlook will remain. Coronavirus thing is a significant thing, which will will have some effects on the Chinese economy, at least in the short term. The Chinese economy is very important in the global economy now. And, um, you know, we, 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 when, when China's economy slows down, we do feel that. And with European earnings season in full swing, we'll be speaking to the CFO of Deutsche Bank, James von Moltke, at 7.30 CET, as well as the CEOs of Diageo, Roche, Shell and Unilever later in the programme. So, very good morning, everybody. Let's kick off the program this morning by just taking a look at these Deutsche Bank numbers. Uh, and I'll just give you a, th- a few headlines here, and then we'll get straight out to a netter for some analysis. So, in terms of the uh, the headline figures we're getting out of the bank this morning, 2019 net loss delivered 5.3 billion euros for the full year. In terms of the fourth quarter, pre-tax loss in at 1.3 billion euros. The uh, CT1 ratio, 13.6%. So, the capital number um, will be some reassurance, I guess, even against the backdrop of some of the challenges around the reorganization of uh, these businesses. That um, CT1 ratio up from 13.4% for the third quarter. Um, continued reduction in risk-weighted assets over at Deutsche Bank as they try to Uh, What's the parlance they use? Right-size the organisation for the opportunity in the marketplace. Uh, And in terms of the uh, the total revenue. Now, interesting, you'll know that I was uh, out in Madrid yesterday talking with Santander and they talked about record revenues and an increase of 2%. Here we've got revenues down 2% for Deutsche Bank. So an indication that the pie is shrinking a little, even as uh, it's hard going. The bank itself characterising these as uh, stable and gaining momentum as they uh, continue to progress on their strategic transformation. Let's get straight to Aneta for some interpretation as to what this means now for the journey that Deutsche Bank is still on in terms of turning itself into a world-beating bank. Annette, good morning. (laughs) Well, good morning to you, Jeff. Well, 
Uh, obviously, the headline is not as positive as your Spanish experience. But if you look at the number, it is showing us that Deutsche Bank is stabilizing and also they are delivering on their cost target. So what they're essentially saying that they have um, already um, yeah, done 70 percent of the restructuring costs. And that is obviously mirrored in that 5.3 billion euro loss for the full year of last year. That was a tad higher than um, previously expected. But still, um, that factors in that they are doing better when it comes to the reduction of the capital release unit. If you look at the different um, core bank units, I think we should talk about investment banking because clearly the investment bank now is a, a play on um, fixed income, on fixed trade, um, trading, as they say, uh, with Deutsche Bank. And here, uh, revenues are actually uh, up by 31% uh, year on year for the last quarter, which is higher than, than, than analysts had expected. Deutsche Bank had some weaknesses there for many, many quarters. And years ago was a very big house in that specific area of business. So my, one can argue they are kind of coming back. And I think the message is that they're benefiting from a better market, but also that some clients are coming back. And as you were pointing out, the other um, specific point, which was surprising on the upside, is the capital ratio, which now stands at 13.6% year end, despite the restructuring costs, despite all uh, the costs they are uh, they are having, and the general message from Deutsche Bank is: Look, we can do the restructuring without a capital hike. That was a major concern. Remember, back in July last year, when they announced their new strategy, nobody believed that they can do it without more capital because it's so cost intensive. But apparently they can do and the environment the bank or banking in general is in currently is not the worst we're seeing some uptick momentum also in client activity that's what the bank is saying as well obviously uh, the negative interest rate environment is not helping and that is eating profits away in the private banking unit and also the corporate bank is kind of not overwhelmingly uh, um, positive here we also see a slight um, decline in revenues and they are saying this is because uh, the last year quarter was so good. Well, uh, we can take that as um, yeah, as their justification for a little, little lower revenue in the corporate bank. I've spoken to James von Molke already um, and we'll bring you that embargoed interview at 7.30 local time, 6.30 your time and he'll explain us how also the bank started to the new year. With that, back to you. Thank you very much for that, Annette. Let's push on to numbers from Roche. And I'll take you first up to the sales print at 61.47 Swissy for 2019. This is just a tad shy of the 62.48 billion handle that some investors were calling for. When it comes to net profit, 14.1 billion Swissy. And uh, investors are just getting a look at uh, some of the numbers across the board that have been described by Roche itself as an excellent operating result. They've pointed to launches of new cancer medicines, uh, saying that that has gone quite well. Additional uh, indications for Decentrix and Cadcycla, a priority review of their new medicine also is taking place. They expect 2020 sales growth in the low to mid-single digit range in spite of even a greater impact from competition 
from biosimilars, so they're talking already about just how fierce a competition is out there. But uh, in terms of that sales print, it was up 9% for the year. Core EPS grew 13% ahead of sales. And then operating profit, uh, the core operating profit up 11%, uh, reflecting a strong underlying business. The pharmaceuticals division sales and that were up 11%. Key drivers, and uh, this is as you break down the different areas of the business, multiple sclerosis medicine was one of them. New haemophilia medicine also mentioned as long as uh, alongside those cancer treatments. So let's get to Juliana to break it down a little bit more for us. Uh, Juliana, I'm sure you've also been looking at different jurisdictions as it's been a little bit lumpier across from the United States to Europe. Mm. Absolutely, Karen. I mean, one regional focus area for investors today is going to be China, which has seen exceptional growth throughout 2019. It's still a relatively small part of their portfolio, but it has seen a very, very strong movement there. And we're going to be looking at that in further detail when we speak with the CEO later this morning. But let's just look at Roche in a bigger picture here beyond just the regional split. Uh, 2019 was a very strong year for the company, boosted by those new medicines, which you mentioned there. They are in the process of trying to offset the erosion and the expected erosion from biosimilars for their old drugs with their pipeline. And in terms of guidance today, it really comes in line with expectations. You mentioned their sales expected to grow low to mid single digits uh, in the coming year. That is bang in line with consensus. And the interesting note there within their outlook is that they say in spite of even greater impact uh, from competition from biosimilars. So that is the real debate around this stock, around the record reconciliation of competition from generics, in particular in the U.S., uh, against their pipeline of newer drugs. Now, I mentioned China is going to be a focal point for investors today and what exactly has been behind the success they've had in China. And is it sustainable, the growth they've seen in that part of the world, in particular, uh, given the, uh, the concerns around the coronavirus, certainly complicating the picture there. In terms of the strategy for Roche, gene therapy is another big topic for investors. Uh, this is an area like Novartis that Roche has been concentrating their efforts on. They have completed the Sparks Therapeutics acquisition. They've also completed the largest licensing deal of its kind in the area of gene therapy with Sarepta Therapeutics. But investors still looking for clarity in terms of where they want to go with gene therapy, one of the most exciting, revolutionary parts of the pharmaceutical world. Now, I'm going to put these questions and more to the CEO, Severin Schwan, when I speak to him in just about an hour's time here in Basel. So stay tuned for that interview. Guys? Terrific. Juliana, thank you very much indeed for that. Okay, let's, uh, I think we've just pointed out Severin Schwan will be on the program, 805 CET for that conversation. Uh, while we're in the uh, area of health and well-being, the death toll from the coronavirus outbreak has risen to 170 as the number of confirmed cases is now above 7,700. According to the latest figures from the Chinese health authorities, the World Health Organization set to meet today to talk again about whether the outbreak should be considered a global health emergency with around 88 cases now reported internationally. Meanwhile, evacuations and domestic quarantines continue for foreign nationals living in Hubei as Singapore and Indonesia are the latest to announce a plan to remove citizens from the region. 16 airlines in total have cancelled flights to China, citing virus fears, Steve. 
Right. The outbreak could cause first quarter growth in China to drop below 5%, according to an economist at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, a top government think tank. The forecast is based on an assumption that the outbreak will peak in mid-February and end in March. That's an extraordinary assumption, given every other bit of news flow, isn't it? Uh, the Chinese economy apparently grew at 6% in the fourth quarter. Uh, actually, 6% for the year in the fourth quarter. That's an annualised figure, of course, uh, marking a 30-year low. Now, speaking to CNBC, White House Trade Chief Peter Navarro dismissed the idea of rolling back tariffs to China as a form of stimulus to help them cope with the economic downturn. That's a spin that's coming right out of Wall Street. And uh, it, it really, I think it does a disservice to this whole crisis to, to bring that into the discussion. Let's remember why the tariffs are in place. The tariffs are in place because China engages in massive unfair subsidies. They use their state-owned enterprises to put American companies and workers out of business. And the tariffs also ensure that we come back uh, to, 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 for phase two. Again, very interesting comments from Mr. Navarro, as ever, who is seen, let's face it, as quite a hawk in the administration as well. Um, but uh, the Asian indices still remain under a lot of pressure, despite, as I say, the hopes from that Chinese official that there could be an end uh, to um, the expansion of the uh, virus, coronavirus, in March. Now, look at the numbers for the Asian indices. And once again, uh, a vast amount of pressure. I'll draw your attention to the Taiwanese market down 6%, give or take the change. 1.7% uh, lower for the Nikkei. Hang Sang down 2.2%. And the Kospi over in Seoul down 1.9%. Let's take a look at the US markets. Faded into the close uh, is pretty much uh, the, the line from this one as well. Out of the gates pretty well uh, and then fading later on. I mean, there's no extra stimulus on the horizon or so it seems coming from Jerome Powell. You'll all be students of what he did and didn't say at the press conference. Safe to say rates were on hold and would remain appropriate, i.e. where they are now with wage growth picking up. Um, we're also seeing, of course, the strong labor market. Let's take a look at the moves of some of the earnings companies after hours. Facebook, Tesla and Microsoft. We can go into some detail on these, but uh, safe to say Facebook losing 7%. Tesla, again, on an absolute tear at the moment. Of course, uh, a stock hotly debated uh, with the shorts out there as well, unconvinced by Mr. Musk and his strategy to turn the company into sustained profits. Uh, but that said, the numbers again uh, proving that the shares are on a tear, up 11.6% and Microsoft up 4.1%. I'll draw your attention to cloud. Let's take a look at the so-called safe havens as well. The Treasury yield we've been drawing your attention to has been uh, diminishing as the underlying bond has rallied. The people have sought some form of safety. 1.577%. Uh, Again, very interesting when you think about it because there was nothing from Jerome Powell to suggest that we were going to see further rate cuts, unlike, of course, what the administration would like to see, especially, dare I say it, in an election year. Jeffrey. Yeah, Steve, thanks very much indeed for that. So more on the uh, flattening of the yield curve. What, it is it, what does it imply in terms of uh, recession outlook for the United States? Well, Jerome Powell holding his nerve. No surprises then as the Fed holds its benchmark interest rate steady. But how does he view the global economic effects of the coronavirus? We'll tell you more about that. And just a reminder, we're podcasting this morning. If you can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune in for our podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
or wherever you get your podcast, have a listen and download today's episode. And as I say, that fade into the close from the US markets, plus the uh, horrible performance if you're long for some of these Asian indices, means that the European futures, well, as you can see, uh, called low at the start of trading. On my telly, at least, the FTSE 74.41, uh, down 49 points. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Morning all, welcome back. The Fed has kept rates unchanged for a second meeting in a row after three consecutive reductions in 2019. However, the central bank did appear more committed to achieving its 2% inflation target. Investors are looking for clues on Chair Jerome Powell's assessment on the impact of the virus outbreak in China. He didn't raise the alarm bells, though, when responding to a question on the effects of the coronavirus on the U.S. economy. We don't think that I, that there's any imminent risk there. Although, as you point out, the coronavirus thing is a significant thing, which will will have some effects on the Chinese economy, at least in the short term. The Chinese economy is very important in the global economy now, and um, you know, we, we, we when when China's economy slows down, we do feel that. Not as much as as countries though that are near China or that trade more actively with China, like some of the Western European countries. We still have, you know, 85% of our economy is domestic. We have a much smaller external sector, trade sector than other economies just because of our physical location. Uh, well, let's bring in Peter Shafrick then, global macro strategist for RBC Capital Markets. Peter, I, I thought um, Jay Powell did a good job of holding the look and giving the impression that the Fed believes everything is okay and they're going to stick with a stable rates policy for the rest of the year. But the market seems to have a different view. It believes that his look will crack at some point. Who do you think's uh, got the right line on where rates are going? Well, look, the market has been betting on uh, interest rate decreases for quite some time now. In fact, it never really believed that the Fed is going to stop at any point anyway. Um, I mean, our forecast is that the Fed is indeed going to be on hold. And when you sort of look through the various parts of the statement, I mean, I find it very difficult in, in both the statement and what he said afterwards to really detect any sign of moving anytime soon from the Fed. What about the movement that we've seen in the 10-year and the flattening of the curve yeah. since the start of the year? Um, what does that imply about recession risk going forward? It's, it's a question we get asked a lot. And, and one of the things globally, um, certainly here in Europe, um, but also in the US, we have to recognize that the, the curve flatness uh, is much, much more pronounced than at any given point in the past, also because of the QE, which has taken out essentially a good part of the term premium anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but even that aside, um, we have flattened. But when you look at sort of the previous episodes, not over the last 50 years, but over the last two or three years, 
we had a lot of false signals. Um, and you know, we don't see a recession coming. And the best indicators we see have to do with the labor market. And the labor market is not budging. Yeah, I need to apologize to our viewers, actually, because we've done mm. something different this year. Normally, Jeff, Karen, and myself come back from Davos, and we spend the next month bragging about who we spoke to and what they told us in Davos. And we haven't done that yet this year. So I need to apologize. They may be slightly confused at our lack of bravado. Um, but the point being is they were uh, optimistic to a woman. They were optimistic to a man across the board as well. And, and as my dear friend Jeffrey points out, they got it 100% wrong a year ago. So are they going to be 100% wrong this year? I mean, for everyone in the market, you know, if you have a very strong consensus, that should be a, a red flag to this you immediately. This is exactly my but, biggest uh, worry. It's not scientific, but it feels right. And that, that is absolutely right. But then again, look, I mean, you know, we are, we are being paid for to dive, uh, to dig into the data, to really dive deep. And, Which and, data? So, I, I mean, love this question. So, what is your favorite well, bit of data for telling you this is good or this is bad? Well, for, for what economy are you asking me? For If you were going back to the recession question, one of the best indicators that we are looking at, again, in, as, as far as the US is concerned, is uh, weekly jobless claims. If they are rising, um, you know something is deeply wrong. Four-week but, uh, is just over 200,000. Exactly. Pretty nice. Doesn't, exactly. Doesn't do anything. So if you, if you plug this into any kind of um, recession models, it does a pretty good job. Um, and currently, it's just not budging. Yeah. For Europe, it's slightly different, of course. Uh, Europe has different indicators, but we, I guess we come to that in a later part. Yeah. So, Peter, the obvious go-to then is a coronavirus and the impact that mm. might have on the US economy. And we heard from Jay Powell there saying it's a significant thing. The Fed was derailed last year on its interest rate path because yes. of the trade war with China. So we can clearly see the impact of the China economy. When you consider that it's now trebled in size and share of the, the world economy since SARS, we can see the potential for this thing having a much bigger impact. So at what point does the Fed take stock and say, well, demand is weaker, growth is weaker, yeah. inflation's not going to hit target because of because of the SARS-like effect the coronavirus sure. is now having on the markets. So, sure. again, I'm not a medical expert, but the one thing I can say is I think we have to look at two channels, how this potentially crosses in. One is obviously the economic channel, and I think he's absolutely right. Um, if the Chinese economy slows down, it takes a hit on the global economy. But the U.S. is relatively insulated on that. But then, of course, it has a different channel. It's just through people coming in and potentially spreading on their, on their own um, continent. That's a completely different story. Um, but when you compare that because the comparison you made is with a trade war. The trade war was an ongoing thing that's very structural in nature because, you know, you put tariffs in place, they're staying there, you, you, um, you restrict trade that the Chinese economy has been banking on. This, I mean, again, I'm not a medical expert, but let's say it's a temporary thing over a couple of months and then we should be rebounding back. Um, in fact, it's quite likely that the Chinese authorities, the Chinese central bank will take some action and it, we could even see a catch up thereafter. So therefore, this should be treated slightly differently from the Fed's perspective. So it could be a year of two halves. The other point I want to raise is around what's happening on the bond markets, because it was fairly significant last year that you saw this intervention trying to keep the, the pipes running smoothly Absolutely. in the States. And we saw 60 billion monthly worth of US Treasury bills that came to the market that's continued. There might be a wind back and some are looking at you know, mid this year and it was mentioned by the Fed yesterday around this April, June period. What happens if you see the, the Fed pull back from this liquidity in the markets? I, I think I think we have to make a key distinction here because what the Fed was doing previously is they were running down their balance sheet and they didn't know sort of where the crucial cutoff point is where money markets are reacting. What they've said now is that they roughly want to go to about 1.5 trillion of excess reserves and then want to hold it there. So they want to bring it up there. That's why 
to keep purchasing. But once they hit that target, they want to keep the excess reserves there, which probably means they still have to buy because one of the things you have to keep in mind is the, um, the, the, the cash that's out there, like physical cash, it's increasing. And that's a liability for the Fed. So that's draining reserves by about the tune of about 10 billion per month. They, so, so just to keep it there, they have to keep going with these operations. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.